problems in the same way and with the same core needs just like all of us here. People who suffered loss of close family and felt the sorrow of death, as Daryl brought out last week. People who were diseased and had little hope. People who were lowly, people who were taken advantage of or cast aside by their birth heritage. And in all these encounters, Jesus gave them restoration and redemption. He liberated them from their misery and he set them on a course of hope. And he continues that in our passage today. Perhaps we could summarize this passage here by his final statement. When Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He goes out to those who were cast aside by the rest of society as the consequence for their actions. And he will call them into fellowship. His call extends to those who are living on the fringes, tax collectors and sinners. And then he brings them into beautiful union with himself. These people were estranged from the rest of society. Tax collectors and sinners didn't conform to the accepted social and religious ideas of the day. And that put them at the edge. The Jewish society in which Jesus ministered was very much concerned with two things. Nationalism and religion. Nationalism and religion and those two things were tied together closely. To be a good Jew first meant that you took your religion seriously. You were a close adherent to following after God and living according to the Old Testament law. And any deviation from that would automatically then put you on the fringes of society. Because Jewish life revolved around meticulous religious adherence, at least externally. But to be a Jew also meant that your core religious identity was of national liberation, where it was tied with liberation. The defining moment for, for Israel in their history was Passover. It was the exodus, the exodus events when God delivered them out from the oppressive hand of Egypt and he set them free. And in Jesus' day though here, the Jewish people weren't free. They were under occupation of the Roman Empire and that wasn't okay in their mind. And then so with that background here, who were tax collectors and sinners in Jewish society? Well, they were those who knew estrangement from the majority because they went against the grain of social acceptance. The tax collectors sold out to the Romans in order to do the dirty work then of, oppress, or of, of collecting taxes from their oppressive countrymen or from their countrymen who were oppressed. The, the term sinner, as it's used here, was a very widely all-encompassing term, particularly for those who lived openly out of step with the, with the religious ethics. These were the deviants of the day. These were those who lived openly immoral lives, and they found themselves out of step with everyone else in this religious and moral society. So these people then were viewed as repugnant. And some of the more rigid traditionalists even said that they were part of the reason why the Jewish people were still under Roman occupation. Now, we're not a society that's tied closely to any one religion like, like this Jewish society was. But that doesn't mean that we don't have some of the same sensibilities as these first century Jews. There are still standards that society generally shares in common, that labels individuals 
as either being accepted in some form or on the outer edges. Meth dealers, clan members, pornographers, these are the modern day equivalents. People who everyone else finds a degree of repugnance, they push to the edge and say, they're what's wrong with society. Yet it's those who are estranged from society who are pushed to the fringes that Jesus goes to here. When he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He calls tax collectors and sinners and anyone else who he could put in those same sorts of categories. And this is what he does. He calls and brings the estranged and the castaways together into new community and fellowship. But this community, though, isn't marked out by social ideas. It's not marked out by religious sensibilities. It's marked out by the gracious healing of the great physician. Verse 12, Jesus says it's the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. It's those who are aware of their needs who require help. And Jesus' mission then is all about bringing healing to the souls of those who are spiritually unwell. The church is intended by our Lord Jesus to be a community of grace, of experiencing the grace of God in Christ, and also then grace as it's passed between one another. We can think of the church community as a hospital for sinners, where Jesus, the great physician, is at work doing his healing business among us. A hospital isn't a place where healthy people hang out. It's where sick, desperate people go to get well. That's part of what the church is. It's not a collection of people who think that they're okay, but where people who know their spiritual issues go to. Because that's the only place that they know where they can get the cure, the mercy of Jesus to forgive them and to transform them. When a church ceases to be a welcome hospital for sinners, then what makes it distinct, the presence of Christ and his grace is gone. Jesus has always been about calling sinners to himself. That's what he does in this passage. He calls Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him and to be his disciple. In fact, Jesus hunts him out. We don't have any indication that Matthew was seeking after him or really had a whole lot of interest. But Jesus approaches him. It's not the other way around. Jesus goes out to the lost sheep of Israel, rescuing them out from their loneliness and their wanderings to bring them into his fold. He is calling them. He's calling them into safety, mercy, and love. And we're going to really focus on this calling here. But it's important to see that at this moment, the call to be a disciple that Jesus gives to Matthew, the call to being a disciple has demands. When Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, there's a whole lot more here than this, those, two, those two spoken words, follow me. Now, Matthew is a tax collector. He may be a sellout, but he has a steady and a well-paying job. I'm sure he lived a pretty comfortable life, at least apart from being despised by the rest of the general populace. But what are Jesus' words? What's Jesus' call to him? It's follow me. That's what he does. He gets up, he leaves his tax table behind him, walks away from his job and his financial future that he has. Essentially, when Jesus says, follow me, he's telling him to leave everything behind for the sake of something better. He's offering him a new life. 
But it's going to require, though, him putting aside everything that he's known. Now, Matthew may not have fully understood all of what this was going to entail for his life. But I think, though, at the same time, he knew that it would change his life and that there would be no going back in this. See, Jesus isn't some, something that we can just nicely fit into our lives or shoehorn somewhere or maybe find a place to add him somewhere in our lives. Jesus doesn't allow himself to be compartmentalized. It's all or nothing. You can't pick or choose with Jesus. You can't put him in this. Say, I'm going to put him in this area of my life. Maybe I'll let him go there. Oh, but this area, it's definitely off limits. No, his call to follow him, just like Matthew, is for the whole person in our lives. It's for all of us. And if we understand him rightly, if we understand his words, if we understand his demands, who he is as the Son of God incarnate, and there's no other option. He must take over our entire life. He will settle for nothing less because he's Lord. And when he calls someone out of sin, when he calls you out from sin, he's putting an exclusive claim upon you so that his words then have the definitive say over you. But this call that he issues doesn't only have demands. The call that Jesus puts upon Matthew gives way to something that's much more beautiful. We want to see also that his call is compelling as well. His call is also compelling. What is it here that would compel Matthew to leave his well-paying job behind with just these two simple words? Why would he or why would anyone do that? Especially with such an uncertain future ahead of him. But there's more to it too. In verse 10, the description of Jesus reclining at table occurred at Matthew's home. This was a celebratory feast of his new call from Jesus. And who does he invite? All of his fellow tax collectors and his sinner friends. But the thing is, they come. Right, here are all these morally and socially repugnant people gathering around Jesus, eating with him, drinking with him, feasting and celebrating with him. The holiest man to ever walk the earth. You would expect these people to sneer or to run away, but it's the opposite. They feast with him. They want to be around him. They can't get enough of Jesus. Why? There's no other answer here. That they find something incredibly alluring, something incredibly compelling, beautiful about Jesus. There's a certain beauty that he has here that is irresistible to them. There's a certain beauty about Jesus that's, that ought to be irresistible to us if we can only see past our own pride. I don't know what's going on inside Matthew here, but it's clear that there was a certain power at work which opened up his eyes and it softened his heart to truly seeing who Jesus was and that he was offering him something much better than the life that he was living before. And somehow these sinners and these tax collectors also wanted to be with Jesus because there was something that they also found alluring to him. Now throughout the Gospels, Jesus takes real interest in people and who they are. He has compassion for the lost. He asks them questions. He wants to get to know them. He wants them to get to know him also. 
Now imagine what it would have been like for these people then, these tax collectors, these sinners who had been pushed out from society. Imagine what it would have been like for them to be seated around the table with Jesus. Now I'm sure Jesus wasn't just sitting alone at, by himself at the end of the table with a grumpy look on his face. I'm sure he was in the middle of the celebration, laughing with everyone, feasting with everyone, holding engaging conversation with everyone, challenging some people, I'm sure, but also the, the doing, doing so in a way that people found compelling. This is a man who knew all of their backgrounds, who knew their past, yet who was also still willing to hold fellowship with them. All the while, here is a man who is holy to the point where the religious people couldn't stand him. Perhaps the beauty which compelled them was the real personal interest and the personal care that Jesus was showing to them. Jesus, the God-man, was showing to them. Beauty has a way of moving us and changing our affections. It has an uncanny way of reaching deep into our souls and stirring us. The beauty of a familiar landscape at a certain time of day, it tends to touch us deeply and gives us a settled heart for what we consider home. Or a painting that draws you in. You're, you're compelled to just simply ponder it, stare at it for hours and upon hours, and you never want to leave because you want to explore all of the facets that it has in it, all the various details. That's why captivating stories are so powerful. They have these ways of tapping into the heart to capture our innermost affections, and they move us to understanding reality just a little bit closer than we did before. For me, A Tale of Two Cities is one of those stories. I'm always deeply moved in the, the finale when Sidney Carton steps into the place of Charles Darnay, who is facing an unjust and an imminent execution. And Carton, who had been a failing underachiever his whole life, he finally does something noble as he sacrifices himself for love and he finds redemption. And the end of the story, as he's thinking, pondering his future, as he's facing the guillotine and he thinks, it is a far, far better thing that I do that I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. We weep at stories like this because they touch on aspects of what we long for. Love sacrifice, redemption. But here's the thing. The story of Jesus is real. It's not a novel. It's the true story that we are all longing for that lies behind all stories of goodness and of beauty and of redemption. The story of Jesus willingly going to the cross to die in place of what he loves. Sinners who were themselves condemned to die. The real story of Jesus doesn't just move us deeply. It changes us. It captures us by the beauty of Jesus and it transforms us because we too are then understand that we are drawn into this beautiful story of redemption and that God is at work in us. Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish minister, has a famous sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he suggests that in order to displace a love of the world in our hearts, we need beauty. And we need a beauty that is better and more compelling than the world offers. It's not merely enough to show the vanity of our old ways of life or of the world. 
Because then it creates a vacuum that will inevitably be filled up by some other fleeting idea. What we need instead is to be given something much more beautiful and compelling. We need a new affection to, to expel our old desires. And Chalmers says the following in his sermon, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in a positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. Let me ask you, do you see anything beautiful and compelling in Jesus? In the words of Chalmers, do you see the worth and the excellence of Christ? When you look at him, what do you see? This is what I see. I see the only true source of hope amid the darkness of the world because Christ Jesus has been crucified and risen from the grave. And that is the only thing that can, com can compel me to continue to move forward and go ahead through the veil of tears in which we live. When I see Christ, I see the wonder of the eternal triune God as the Father would send his own Son and the Son would do so willingly and lovingly to rescue sinners like me from the clutches of my own desires and to draw me then by the Spirit into this divine relationship to partake from the fount of all beautiful things. I see that same God enacting his redemptive story to make all things new and having worked out every single detail of it before the foundation of the world and then graciously drawing me into that story that's way bigger than myself and it's better than any other story that I could even make for myself. It's a story that affirms all of my deepest longings, yet a story that challenges my dreams by promising something even better. Friends, what do you see when you see Christ? Do you see God through this lens of beauty? What do you see? I pray that it would be compelling to us all. As Jesus calls and welcomes sinners to himself, his call's not only compelling, but we also see that this call comes from the heart of God. Now the sinners and the tax collectors find the call of Jesus to be compelling. But the Pharisees though, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the religious leaders who took pride in their own meticulous religiosity, they find Jesus to be offensive. We can't even say that the Pharisees were entirely present here in this, in this situation. When they questioned the disciples in verse 11, they asked them, who is your teacher? Well, the text suggests that they are actually standing outside the doors, talking to the disciples before Jesus gets word. And that's because they don't even want to be in the same house with these people, let alone sitting at the same table. For them, it came down to issues of separation and identification. A highly religious identity is concerned with how well someone can meet a certain standard. So much that it becomes the norm by which they view the world and other people. And that, and that feeds one's personal pride. Because what separates me then 
from others is how well I can keep the rules. But it also leads to a feeling of needing to remain distinct. The religious and moral distinction that is felt will inevitably manifest itself through a physical distinction, a distinction of proximity as they separate themselves from others who don't follow those accepted social religious norms. And inevitably then, as we see with these Pharisees, it brings them to the point of being unwelcoming to those who they deem as being the others. And then they chase them away, either passively by ignoring them, or if they don't get the hint, just simply casting them aside. Yet Jesus, though, arrives and he, bring, and he begins his ministry, going to the tax collectors and welcoming sinners to the point of even eating with them. As Jesus does this, it obliterates all the categories that these Pharisees had. They, they, don't, have, they don't have hooks in their minds to understand what Jesus is doing right here. A religious mindset. In other words, an understanding of relating to God by my own works is incompatible with Jesus' actions. Because Jesus demonstrates firsthand the unfettered grace and mercy of God. Jesus isn't enamored with image as he sits with sinners. He isn't afraid to be seen with them. He's not afraid of any quote-unquote corrupting influence that they might have on him. The Pharisees had concerns about getting too close with, with sinners. What if they start to rub off on us? Don't we need to maintain separation if we're to be a holy people? The same question gets asked still in the church today. Well, what if the church begins to look like the world? But what's the motivating thought behind those words for separation? It's fear. Fear because perhaps it calls us to be a little uncomfortable at times. Or it could be a misunderstanding of grace. That the church's holiness comes from myself rather than being dressed in the holiness of Jesus by faith alone. So doubtless, this is going to be messy at times. That's to be expected, right? Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard by the religious leaders because he spent so much time eating and drinking with sinners. And that can lead to a sense of fear, fear that we will be identified with them. But more often, where does that fear come from? It's not from those outside the church. Most often, those fears come from people from inside the church. What are those other people going to say? In fact, that's where Jesus' greatest criticisms came from. It came from those who considered themselves to be a part of God's people. That's because Jesus here looked at people in a profoundly different way than others did. It's easy to look at people primarily through the the lens of their failures. That becomes the distinguishing mark. But Jesus looked at people in their need. And, that's his, and it's then his compassion for the needy that drove him to act. We're not called to live out of fear. We're called to be compelled by the beauty of the Christ that we have dwelled upon earlier today. Because this call of Jesus here to the sinner is the very desire of God. The reconciliation of sinners and tax collectors and the estranged from society is at the heart of God's mission. To reconcile them into something better. Out of estrangement and into fellowship with himself. By taking all that caused the rift in that relationship with him and then nailing it to the cross. Putting it upon Jesus. Jesus the son was sent by the father because this is the father's heart. 
And Jesus, the son, did it willingly because this is his heart. The cross where Jesus died wasn't an accident. Ephesians 1 says that it was planned by God from eternity past. It has eternally been in, in, in his mind. The eternal plan here just shows us how much God is committed to calling sinners to himself. And Jesus assumes then the role of teacher to show these Pharisees just how wrong they really are. Right? They refer to him as teacher in verse 11. Well, verse 13, essentially Jesus says, I'm going to teach you a lesson then about how wrong and how misunderstood you've been about God. Go learn that this, what this means. I desire mercy and not, sac- er, and, and not sacrifice. He's not pulling this phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice from thin air. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. This is God's word in Hosea 6. And there Hosea called out Israel for misunderstanding God by appealing to how well they'd maintained religious ritual as a cover for how little they'd actually listened to him. They couldn't recognize the harm that they were causing to others because their focus was on their religious performance to please God. And the Lord, as Jesus quotes, says that what really pleases him isn't how well you've kept these religious rules, but mercy and living in right knowledge of who he is. And who is he? Merciful and compassionate to those who seek him. And as Jesus crosses boundaries to, to call sinners to themselves, to himself, and they come seeking him because they recognize the compelling beauty of God who is coming to them, he is continuing the same desire of God from Hosea 6. Because the heart of God never changed. The heart of God never changes. Not even today. The shocking part of all this here is that if anyone had the right to maintain a, a, a separation, it was the holy God himself. But we, we see consistently throughout the biblical story, he, is repeated, he repeatedly comes down to his sinful people when they failed and he calls them back to himself. He is, he is concerned about holiness. His standard of holiness to be in fellowship with him doesn't change. But the holy God himself bridges the gap by giving his people what they need and what they could never have on their own. True holiness. A holiness which comes from another. See, as Jesus is welcoming the religious outcasts here, he is living in perfect accordance to what God the Father desires. He is living the character of God in humble obedience. And the gospel message of Christ for sinners... The message of Christ for you says that the only way to be holy is by him giving all of what he did for unholy people. Holiness isn't what you do. Holiness is what he did. I said earlier that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a place for sinners to come and to experience the the healing of Jesus. But that's not all. It's not only a hospital. It's also a rehab center. It's a rehab center for recovering Pharisees. We recognize that we're saved by grace. Uh, that our, it's our own, our, our own religious works before God cannot save us. We've come to take hold of Christ by faith. We endeavor to live a life out of obedience to his mer- because of his mercy. 
But yet still, despite all that, there is something that slips in our hearts, slips in our minds. We're people who are hardwired for works. And it's so easy for us to fall back then into the old patterns that we've sworn off. We never truly kick the habit. We still have a taste for the pride and the, the exhilaration that that religious mindedness gives. But the church as a rehab center is where we encounter Jesus yet again. It's where those of us who have indulged our inner pharisaical desires can come back and remind, be reminded again that I don't have a leg to stand on before God. And once again, as we do each week, to receive the mercy and the holiness that I need then just as much as the sinner and the tax collector need. I see the heart of God a little bit more clearly. A pastor friend of mine often says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one sits in a position of prominence or higher up. We're all on an even standing before the cross because we are all in equal, in equal need. And that applies to recovering Pharisees just as much as sinners and tax collectors. And friends, this is where we begin to see the beauty of Jesus anew. We are compelled by his merciful nature for all sorts of people, for sinners and for Pharisees. We see that he's patient with us, that he's continuing to work in us by his spirit, that he is healing us and he is giving us a greater love and affection for him than to replace our affections for our self-created holiness. Let's pray. Lord God, there is an infinite beauty that is within you. Infinite because you are infinite. And there is no possible way that we could plumb the depths of it. Thank you that we have eternity to do so and it will still not be enough. Lord, help us to see at least in this life right now, and appreciate the beauty of Jesus, to be compelled by it, to have it take over our affections and to control all the things that we do. Lord God, you put a call upon us, and we, I pray that, you would, that we would respond to the call that you have put on us accordingly, to listen and to follow that call with all of its demands, even though it might be difficult to see your beauty. The call to also see the worthlessness as, of, as well of our self-constructed holiness. Those times when we might have pride, would you poke holes in it to see that we have nothing and to cast our eyes up then to see that in Jesus we have everything. We have all the holiness we could ever need. Our God, he is so sufficient. Father, I pray that you would make this church here a welcoming hospital for sinners. That we would reflect the heart of Jesus, the heart of you. Father, would we also though be, be a gentle rehab center? Would we all, all of us come around you with open hands, knowing that none of us have anything that we can bring. Knowing that none of us have any any greater worth than another, and just simply come and take and receive from the mercy of Jesus. Grant us the ability to better recognize your grace that you have, especially at the table 
that we come to now. Prepare our hearts for this, to be seated with Jesus and to be fed and nourished by him. We pray this in his name. Amen.